The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, your Chest podcast host. So thank you all for joining us today for what will be an interesting conversation on the quality of resuscitation in the ICU. We're very fortunate today to have Dr. Ari Moskowitz and Dr. Keith Cooper as our guests. Dr. Moskowitz, Dr. Laura Rowessler, and their colleagues wrote an article for the Chest Journal, Resuscitation Quality in the Intensive Care Unit, a Retrospective Analysis. Dr. Moskowitz is an Assistant Professor of Medicine and Director of Critical Care Quality and Patient Safety at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. His research focuses on in-hospital cardiac arrest, and he's the co-chair of the American Heart Association Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation Research Task Force. Now, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Sarah Tomasini wrote an editorial, Cardiac Arrest in the ICU, Measuring Performance to Drive Improvements in Care. Dr. Cooper is an assistant professor in emergency and critical care, working between the University of Warwick and University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust in the UK. His research focuses predominantly on cardiac arrest in both the in-hospital and pre-hospital settings. He also holds volunteer roles with the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, European Resuscitation Council, and Resuscitation Council UK. Thank you so much, Dr. Winter. Excited to be here today. Uh, And thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. It'll be a great podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. So to get started, Dr. Moskowitz, resuscitation is obviously something that we do a lot of in the ICU. So let's start by discussing your why. Why did you decide to research this topic? What was your question and why is it important? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. Um, In-hospital cardiac arrest is is very common and something we face every day as intensivists. Um, At least in the United States, most cardiac arrests happen in the ICU. And in general, prior researchers, my group included, have focused largely on cardiac arrests happening outside the ICU perhaps thinking that patients who arrest in the ICU can be assumed to receive excellence, guideline-concording care, or, um, and I've heard this as well, that patients who arrest in the ICU may not be generally salvageable. We wanted to assess this assumption and uh, maybe identify areas where, one, um, we can improve, or two, if we were really excellent in some areas, then maybe shift the quality focus to other important elements, um, like maybe even cardiac arrest prevention. Now, what are the American Heart Association quality metrics, and why do they exist? 
So the, the AHA, uh, Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation Program, is really focused on saving lives uh, through hospital-to-hospital benchmarking and uh, quality improvement initiatives. There's a number of key metrics that the AHA looks at. These include time to defibrillation for shock low rhythms, um, looking to, to get that under three minutes, time to epinephrine for non-shock low rhythms in under six minutes, the frequency with which invasive airway devices placed during an arrest are confirmed to be in the trachea, and the percent of arrests that are monitored or witnessed. Uh, each of these metrics is based on uh, a, a strong body of evidence finding associations with improved outcomes. And Dr. Cooper, in your editorial, you wrote about the American Heart Association Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation Registry. Can you please discuss the registry and its importance and aims? So I guess the starting point really is that cardiac arrest registries, whether they're in a hospital or out of hospital registries, are phenomenally important. And I guess they have the really key purposes of of audit and quality improvement and helping to benchmark organizations, but also research such as this. Um, I I think across the world, we have this wide range of registries. I think one of the most exciting things about the American Heart Association Get With The Guidelines resuscitation registry really is but both the large size in terms of hospitals and number of participants, but also the really important granular detail about all aspects of the cardiac arrest pathway, including pre-arrest characteristics, the intra-arrest care, but also moving on um, through the patient journey to their post-arrest care. And Dr. Moskowitz, can you briefly explain your study design for our listeners? Of course, be happy to. Uh, so we use the Get With The Guidelines Resuscitation Registry, which is a prospectively collected, as you just heard, database of hundreds of thousands of in-hospital arrests across hundreds of hospitals across the United States. Using this registry, we isolated nearly 100,000 patients who suffered cardiac arrest in the ICU between the years of 2006 and 2018. And then we further refined this cohort to approximately 75,000 patients who suffered an index arrest, um, meaning that the first um, arrest of the admission um, was what we we took. Uh, We then looked at the key AHA quality metrics and assessed how commonly they were met in this cohort. We also explored how QI metric adherence has changed over time using uh, what's called a modified Poisson regression. And um, we used this this, uh, model just to get into the weeds a little bit because it allows for the calculation of relative risk and not odds ratios like logistic regression. Uh, that's an important point when the event rate is high, um, as it is here. The models were adjusted for a number of uh, covariates, including patient arrest and hospital-specific covariates, and we used generalized estimating equations to account for clustering by hospital site. And what did you find regarding time to epinephrine and its associated variables? Yeah, honestly, we do great. Um, so median time to epinephrine in the ICU was just one minute. And over 90% of patients across the, the time period received epinephrine in less than six minutes. That said, even with those very high numbers, we actually did see an improvement from 93% adherence in 2006 to 98% in 2018. It's interesting because our group had previously looked at this metric in cardiac arrests outside the ICU and found a median time to epinephrine of three minutes, um, a, a full two minutes later. So it does show that we do a lot better, at least with this metric, in the ICU. And what did you find regarding time to defibrillation? So maybe a little bit less rosy there, um, at least with respect to the AHA uh, quality metrics. 
we found that the uh, median time to depopulation, as it was for epinephrine, was one minute. But just 72% of patients in 2006 met the criteria of receiving defibrillation in under three minutes for shockable rhythms. Um, unfortunately, we saw little change over the, the decade that we looked at. Um, and in 2018, the number was 75%. As you might expect, adherence was lower and patients admitted to the hospital for non-cardiac reasons. So patients, you know, specifically in the medical ICUs as opposed to the, the cardiac ICUs. And what were the results of confirmation of airway device placement? So I think um, back to the good news there. Uh, over seven, over 90% of patients in all years had confirmation of airway device in the trachea. And like epinephrine, we saw an increase to 97% adherence by 2018. So Dr. Cooper, you discussed some challenges inherent in measuring process outcomes. Can you explain some of those for our listeners? So I think there's two key things to, to reflect on here, w w one of which is defining the standard that we want to achieve. And, and I think within that, we have this balance between thinking about the importance or, or, or the clinical rationale for that standard, how achievable it is, uh, uh, and what our ambition is to drive forward that, that performance. Um, I think one of the things that I reflected on um, from Dr. Mos uh, Moskovitz's study is that it seems really easy conceptually to deliver epinephrine within that, that amount of time in the ICU. You've got pre-existing vascular access. Um, you, you, you've got monitored patients who, where you can rapidly identify the rhythm and, uh, and rapidly deliver an immediately available drug. And I, I guess that brings up the question of should we have different standards for different settings to really help to drive forward that, that performance? Um, I, I think the other thing that we reflected on the editorial was around timings. And whenever we talk about timings during a cardiac arrest, it becomes um, quite tricky because in the middle of our cardiac arrest, our, uh, our focus is always on the delivery of high quality time critical care. Um, at that point in time, documentation isn't uh, the top of our minds. So what we typically end up doing, um, certainly in my practice, is that we almost end up recreating the arrest um, at the end, post-event, to, to try and estimate what, when key events happened. Um, uh, I think that's reflected in the literature, even when you've got people... Um, dedicated to being able to record things. There's different clocks showing different times. I think the end result of that is that timings can be prone to, to error and misclassification. Uh, we, we, we need to have some amount of caution um, in interpreting these data, particularly when that might differ between hospitals in how they capture those timings. Now, Dr. Moskowitz, why do you think there was an improvement in these metrics over time? Yeah, um, and I, I totally agree with everything Dr. Cooper just said, and I think we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, in terms of the improvements in the metrics over time, I, I'd like to think um, that some element of this, and honestly, it, it's actually one of the limitations of the study, is that the improvement we see is linked uh, to participating in the Get With The Guidelines registry. Uh, that's the whole idea anyway. That's why we have this registry, um, is to see improvement in these metrics and to celebrate improvement in these metrics but it also may make the study less generalizable to hospitals that don't participate. Other factors that might contribute uh, to improvement in these metrics over time would be things like maturation of hospital cardiac arrest committees, a recognition of the importance of quality and process improvements, 
and maybe some better monitoring and response technologies that have been rolled out in ICUs. And like you, I'm also concerned about the poor adherence to defibrillation times. Why do you think that number is so low, and what can we do to help improve it? Yeah, I think it probably boils down to a couple of things. Um, first, uh, the timeline, as I mentioned earlier, for um, defibrillation is much tighter than that for epinephrine. So we're talking in, you know, under three minutes, under three minutes versus under six minutes. And the median time to the um, uh, intervention in, for both epinephrine and defibrillation was one minute. So some of it might just be that we're, we're more strict on the, the timeline for, dif- for defibrillation. There's good reason for this, though. You know, uh, prompt defibrillation of a shock valve rhythm is one of the few things in cardiac arrest that we know works. Um, but that said, you know, it might uh, result in these lower adherence numbers that we're reporting. In addition, um, ICU arrests and, and in-hospital arrests in general um, have uh, less frequent initial shock valve rhythms, um, especially in non-cardiac patients where we saw the lowest adherence uh, to defibrillation. In our cohort, less than 20% of the in-hospital cardiac arrests had initial shock valve rhythms. So there might be just fewer training opportunities in terms of getting the defibrillator on and analyzing the rhythm and providing that defibrillation. Now, Dr. Cooper, you also wrote about the need to understand what underlies the variability in performance differences across these hospitals, especially in the context of defibrillation. So what do we know from prior studies on this topic? So I guess the starting point here is that variability in performance across organizations in the context of cardiac arrest is nothing new uh, and has been reported widely before. Um, One of the interesting things from this study is when you look at the hospital performance, it seems that there is a cluster of hospitals that that never achieved the defibrillation target and some that reported achieving it 100% of the time. I think there's probably two things that we need to be mindful of. One of these is comes back to this point about timings, and we do need to reflect on whether there might be differences in the way that these data are collected across hospitals that may explain some of this variability. Um, but, but I think it, you know, if nothing else, it should still be a driver for all hospitals to explore their own performance and think about what strategies they might be able to adopt to help drive their performance forward. And I think when we look at previous studies, we've seen several studies that have looked to explore the association between organizational factors and performance. And and things like debriefing seems to consistently be effective, but other factors are perhaps less clear in in how well um, they they help to drive performance. I I guess what we organizations need to be mindful of is to, to reflect on what their particular challenges are and what might work in their particular setting at that particular time for them. And I think one of the key advantages of being involved in the Get With The Guidelines Registry is the fact that because you've got this high quality data that gets reported back to you, it really helps track your performance and help you benchmark against other organizations. And I think that's one of the most important aspects of that involvement in these kind of registries. And Dr. Moskowitz, what are some of the limitations of this study? Yeah, so I think there's um, a few, and we outline, I think, uh, six or seven in, in the manuscript. But I think uh, one is most important, and, and that's what I mentioned earlier. 
uh, we're studying hospitals in the registry who are specifically being rewarded for adherence to these metrics, for reporting and getting feedback and benchmarking on these metrics. Uh, this may result in higher adher- adherence rates that might be seen at hospitals outside of the registry. I don't know, and I think it's an important and open question, what these rates would look like at hospitals not participating in Get With The Guidelines. Um, and I just want to you know, echo, echo Dr. Cooper's point, again, that, that the benefit of this registry is that you can benchmark and um, track how you're doing with respect to these metrics. Um, but again, it, it does um, uh, create a limitation when we report uh, research um, on this registry. And what does your study specifically add to the literature around the quality of resuscitation? Like, what is its unique contribution? Yeah, so um, our group had previously looked at quality of cardiac resuscitation outside the ICU, but we recognized that a major gap in knowledge existed regarding in-ICU cardiac arrests. Our data shows that for many of our key metrics, our performance is, is really excellent, um, over 95% at least within the context of the limitations that we talked about. That said, we did identify at least one area, um, cardiac arrest in patients admitted with non-cardiac, um, for non-cardiac reasons with initial shock rhythms, where we have a lot of room to improve, um, specifically on that defibrillation metric. So where do we go from here? How do we use your findings to improve care, and what studies need to happen to advance this research further? So, yeah, I think that's really the key question. Um, and, and when we, we, um, yeah, so spent some time thinking about, you know, I think that our results, um, coupled with the still poor, uh, but improving, um, outcomes of in ICU resuscitation in this study, um, 70% of our patients achieved ROSC and about 20% survived the hospital discharge show that ongoing focus on the same quality metrics in the ICU, especially things like time to epinephrine are probably not going to move the needle very much on our overall goal, which is improving um, survival and, and meaningful survival. I think that's something that Dr. Cooper you know, referenced earlier as well, that, that maybe we um, should be thinking about some other, other metrics. I'm not sure what those metrics are. Um, I think we need to think about things like um, CPR performance, looking at compression depth, fraction um, rates, length of pauses, things that we can get with some of the more modern defibrillators that are out there. Um, think about how we measure teamwork um, during gestation in the ICU. And, um, you know, one of the one of my um, recent focuses in research is actually how to prevent ICU arrest from occurring in the first place. I think because a lot of our patients in the ICU are so heavily monitored with tight nursing ratios that we think that many of these arrests are not preventable and they're occurring in the, you know, sp- space with the most uh, monitoring. But um, our recent studies have shown that actually a fair percentage might be preventable and that could be a target for future um, interventions. You know, I think that um, we've, you know, picked a lot of the low-hanging fruits, especially with things like time to epinephrine. And now we've got to think a little bit more broadly about how we um, improve outcomes for cardiac arrest in the ICU. And even thinking about things like more proactive initiation of goals of care um, discussions and palliative care involvement could be a big part of that. So as we finish up this discussion... Can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. Moskowitz? Sure. And it's, it's been really great being here and um, speaking with you both. My, my takeaway is that as we get better and better at our existing performance metrics, especially in the ICU setting where we're really seeing truly excellent performance on most of our metrics, we need to think more deeply about what we can do to move the needle on survival and meaningful survival after in-hospital cardiac arrest in the ICU. I do think taking a step back and learning and studying and thinking about cardiac arrest prevention is a key part of that and hope to see more of that work in the future. And Dr. Cooper. 
So, so, so I, I, I agree entirely with that. I, I, I guess my additional thought is this is a, a really important, well-done, methodologically robust study. Uh, I think what, one of the things to perhaps reflect on is that it's only through the dedication and focus of, of the participating hospitals that contribute to registries like this that we can really understand exactly what's going on and, uh, and, and really help to drive performance and undertake the research that these registries support. So, so, so I think that's a phenomenal achievement amongst the, the American Heart Association Get With The Guidelines Resuscitation Registry Participating Hospitals is is that focus on, on supporting the, the registry and, and, and ending up with really important data like these. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Moskowitz and Dr. Cooper for this great discussion on a very relevant topic. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a Test Podcast. Until next time.